Verse 9, chapter 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, let us ask God to bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father, we thank you for your promises, for the hope we have, for the truth we have for all of the blessings that even this morning we have been able to drink in to our souls and ask now that we would continually drink from the river of life, from the glory of God. Amen. Well, if you talk to many Christians about heaven in this day and age, you'll get a host of different answers on what heaven is like, where heaven is, who is going to heaven, etc. And you can go back to uh, that song by John Lennon where the words say, imagine there is no heaven. It is easy if you try a song perhaps inspired by another Lennon. But uh, what you see, well, some of you are clever, what you actually see there, imagine there's no heaven, is actually the thinking of many Christians today who don't actually live as though 
the future prospect of heaven affects their life in any significant way. It's not something they deny, but there is a way in which you can deny it practically by not living as though heaven is actually your home, your eternal home, and where you are designed to be forever and ever. Now, you may counter and say, well, uh, Pastor Mark, there is the possibility that we can be so heavenly-minded as to be of no earthly good. Now, if you find such a person, show that person to me. Show me that person who, you know, thinks about heaven too much that they uh, can't do anything in society. I don't have that problem when I go up to my children's room and ask them to maybe come downstairs and do something or even just hang out. And they say, well, Dad, you know, I've just been meditating upon the glories of heaven. If you could just give me five minutes. I mean, this doesn't happen, does it? Do you find that? It's, it's not going to happen in my house. It's probably not going to happen in your house where people are meditating upon heaven, where they desire to be with the Lord of glory, where they desire to be with God's people, where they desire to be in a place of unblemished righteousness and glory, and that's crippling them from living in this world. Now, why don't we think about heaven enough in large part, has to do with the fact that we don't actually understand what heaven is going to be like, or what we are going to be like in heaven, and what we're going to do there. So, in some respects, I sympathize with those who don't think about it much. They've been given an anemic heaven, a pitiful heaven, a heaven, quite frankly, I don't want to be in. But the scriptures don't give us such a heaven. And John sees this in a vision that an angel is revealing to him. And his first vision is the vision of a city bride. So we are described, God's people, as a city, a Jerusalem. You see this in verse 9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And this bride comes from God. And the first point to emphasize, and at the risk of being completely misunderstood, I'm going to say it anyway, the Bible gives us what is the consummate arranged marriage. The father prepares a bride for his son, and it is of the father's doing. The father is the one we read of who chooses before the foundation of the world those who will be holy and blameless in his sight. And it is a gift that he gives to the son. So in John 17, when Christ is praying, he thanks the father for the gift of the people of God. The Father arranges this marriage. And so you see in verse 9, as he has a glimpse of the bride, the wife of the Lamb, that this comes at the end of verse 10, 10 from God. Now that's not a problem, an arranged marriage, when the Father is the one choosing, because the Father is filled with wisdom, knowledge, holiness. He doesn't make mistakes. I suspect my children, uh, if I were to say, you know what, let's buck the trend because clearly you young people can't get yourselves together with picking suitable spouses, most of you. Hand it over to me. And they say, okay, well, this seems a bit dangerous, but what could go wrong? Well, I'll tell you what could go wrong. 
I would be concerned for things that maybe they wouldn't be concerned of. But the father is concerned in a way that there can be no doubt that he will choose wisely. The shocking thing is when you actually look at those whom the father does choose for the son, your initial impression might be that the father has made some serious mistakes, just as he speaks of Israel. Only you have I foreknown of all the families in the earth, of all the nations, Israel. And then you look at Israel's history and you think, what is he choosing these people for? And then you look at your history and you think, why would he have chosen me? And none of it makes sense unless you read Revelation chapter 21. It's not what of us when he chose us, but what will become of us when all is complete. So he takes him away in the spirit, verse 10, to a great high mountain. And this is very biblical that when there is a vision, a theophany, they are taken to a great high mountain. When you want to see something, a great high mountain is a great place to have a view. In Victoria, I grew up uh, and I could run from my front door to Mount Doug base, Mount Douglas, the base of Mount Doug in 10 minutes. And then it would take, you know, roughly 20, 25 minutes to get to the top. And when you get to the top, you get to see a panoramic view of the Malahat, the Olympic Mountains of Victoria. You get to see the ocean, the boats. You get to see the old people in Victoria driving in their cars inordinately slow. You get to see all of these things and it's quite beautiful. And you look around and you see glory and glory and then you go to another mountain and Table Mountain in Cape Town and you get to see the Atlantic Ocean, the Indian Ocean. You get to see the vineyards. You get to see glory upon glory. And so it's not surprising that to see this glory, he's taken to the top of a great high mountain. And what does he see? The holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And what we find out in this chapter is that That is actually the people of God. Now, notice the description of the city. Verse 11, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And what's interesting about jasper, and John is speaking to his listeners, is that jasper is not clear as crystal. In fact, jasper is like a gold or mustard or yellowy type of stone. So what he's doing is something quite interesting. He is saying it's like jasper, but it's not like jasper. It's like jasper, but it's beyond your conception of jasper. In other words, heaven is a place that you use images to try and describe it, and yet it doesn't meet what we typically understand. It is beyond our comprehension. So what is this place like? It's glory. Well, it is a place that has, in verse 12, a great high wall. There's 12 gates. You'll notice there's lots of emphasis on 12. 12 angels and the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. It's speaking about the people of God, representative of the people of God. This is the city. So there's three gates on each of the north, west, south, east side. And then verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And Paul will say in Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets of Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. The point is he's going to extreme lengths to emphasize certain aspects about heaven. And the great high wall, which we'll come to later, is emphasizing protection. 
So you have in verses 9 to 14, glory and safety, beauty and protection. And that beauty continues in verses 15 to 21 because he's given a measuring rod. And this measuring rod uh, identifies the city with its length and with its width. And you see the 12,000 stadia, the length and the width and the height are equal. So the city's like a cube. And the dimensions dwarf the dimensions of Ezekiel's temple. In other words, there's a breathtaking majesty and glory, but also magnitude of the people of God. This is not a small little tribe. This is breathtaking in its majesty. And so you have security, but you have amazing size to this city. In fact, one of the commentators makes this point that in physical terms, this would make the city approximately 1,365 miles wide and long and high. So you take the northernmost part of Israel, the southernmost part of Israel, you multiply that by 10 and you get roughly what is here. And then the walls are not only massive, but when you get into the actual size of this, this, this city would, would extend in its orbit in sense of there would be satellites that this city would reach to in our modern conception. If you want a more tangible way to look at it, if you think of California to Chicago, that would be the sort of length. But then you have the width and the depth of the city. It's massive. And it's also marked by all of these beautiful stones. So the idea of the people of God is that they are beautiful. And he uses 12 stones to show just how beautiful the people of God are going to be. In fact, if you look at some of these stones, it'll take you right back to Genesis, which speaks of the bedellium and the onyx and the gold that were in Eden. And here, the people of God now take on these characteristics of beauty. So you have protection, you have glory, and you have beauty. But then you have the sort of consummation of why There is so much beauty in verses 22 to 26. So there's no temple in the city. The temple was the holy place. It's where God dwelt. Because why? Because the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And this is a common refrain in the New Testament where we speak of God and Christ. So Jesus in John 17, 3, one of my favorite verses, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So in the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And this city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, I don't think you need to worry about the fact that when we go to heaven and when the new heavens and the new earth emerge from glory and this earth is recreated, that there will be no planetary system, that there will be no sun and no stars. That's not the point. The point is is that we are not in need of anything but the glory of God to sustain us. But I don't think John is saying that we will not see beautiful stars, that we will not see uh, all sorts of planetary systems. I'm quite convinced we will. It's a way to describe how the glory of God is going to give us everything that we could possibly need 
and desire. And by this glory that comes from God and Christ, the nations will walk. That is, we will live according to the glory of God, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In other words, you will bring your glory into the place where God has unmediated glory towards you. That is something we do not experience in this life. That's something we did not experience in the Old Testament. There was a temple, there was a curtain, there was a cubed room, and nobody went in there except the high priest. Now everybody is in there, everybody is walking in, and everyone is seeing the glory of God, and its gates never will be shut, verse 25, by day, and there will be no night there. There will be no darkness And I've thought about that. I've thought about sleeping and how much I enjoy it. The youth were over last night, and uh, they're a tiring bunch. That's why I avoided them. But I said that night, I'm already looking forward to my nap after the morning service in Vancouver when I get home. I hadn't even gone to bed, and I was looking forward to my nap. Have you ever had that? You're so tired, you're not even concerned about the night's sleep. You're looking forward to the other one. So it's hard for me to think about, well, I would like a nap. Because I'm just so tired. So I'm a little bit distressed over the fact that I may not get to nap until I realize I won't need to. Because like Mr. Burns and the Simpsons, I will be indestructible. I will be someone who has no need of any fatigue or pain. So there will be no night and there will be no darkness because the glory of the Lord will shine and they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But be absolutely certain nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This city, because the glory of God is going to be unmediated, cannot possibly allow anything unclean into it. Otherwise, it would be absolutely annihilated at the moment of such a sight. And so, the detestable not only will hate to see the glory of God, but will not be able to see the glory of God. Now, I wanted to kind of wrap all of this up in a few points for you to understand about heaven, because this is symbolic language. There's truths that are being conveyed here. It's hard for us to understand what it could possibly be like because of our finite minds. But I want you to understand the first thing is God has a concern to protect you. He always has, from the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, He has protected you. When you came into this world, He has protected you. When you first believed, He has protected you so that no one can snatch you out of His hand. But here's the consummation of it. He builds massive walls, so to speak, to protect you. You will be protected by God, physically and spiritually. And I think those of us who've been in very scary situations or have lived in dangerous countries or cities understand a little bit of the value of what it feels like to be protected in a dangerous place. Our missionary, uh, Chester Chummy, I remember going to Johannesburg once and he said, as I was over at his house with my family, he's like, let's go and do door-to-door evangelism. 
Now that sounds nice around here. Hey, we go down the streets, we knock on some doors, assure them we're not Jehovah's Witnesses, not Mormons, not selling bug spray, not selling this, that, and the other. And we finally say, hey, you know, we're Christians. Oh, so nice. But at nighttime in Johannesburg, in a rundown apartment building block, when you leave the house to go and knock on people's doors, do you know what the first thing you do is? You pray. And you pray, Lord, please bring me back to my family. And then when you knock, you know what you do when you knock? You kind of knock, and if they don't answer, oh, well, we must get going next. And then they open up, and there's drug dealers sitting there, and they say, oh, hey. And there's me standing there, hi. And I was terrified. Chester is not scared by anything. He's a little pit bull, just walks around. No fear. My knees are buckling. And then we knock another one. It's a mother with her, with her child there. And she's living beside drug dealers. And then you go to another one. And then you hear gunshots. You hear sirens. And you, you're actually scared. You don't feel protected. And then if you drive about 50 miles away, you see these compounds. And they build massive walls and security. And there's barbed wire and electric fences above the massive walls. And to get in, you need to, in some places, actually even get uh, your photo taken. And then you go in inside these walls and you've been on the outside and you go in these walls and there's no gates and there's houses and there's nice pathways and beautiful gardens and tennis courts and fountains and you feel so safe. And then you go out and you feel like you're in danger. And when you have that feeling of what it like to actually relax, it's quite something. When I was at seminary in South Africa, I used to, at night, move the fridge in front of the door. I would wake up, terrified for some reason, and move the fridge in front of the door. It did absolutely nothing, by the way. I mean, it was pathetic. But the feeling of fear and the feeling of protection is something that maybe some of us can understand what it's truly like. God is going to protect you. You will not need to fear anything. The second thing God is going to provide for you, not only his glory, but also the nations. In verses 23 and 24, the nations walk in. The nations, not one nation, not a small group of people. It is going to be nations and nations and nations and people and people and people. Heaven is going to be a place for social butterflies. All of you introverts need to understand that heaven is going to deal with your problem. And you're going to be around people. And isn't it a glorious thing? I was looking out among the people this morning and thinking, wow, I'd never even seen some of these people before. And there they are sitting there, every nation. And looking out among you this morning, every nation. And this is just a microcosm of what heaven is going to be. So many people. And you're actually going to like all of them. And you're going to enjoy all of them. And you're going to have no complaints against any of them. Because they will bring their glory in and you will bring your glory in. And God not only has a concern to protect you and to provide for you, but he also has a concern to beautify you. That's the major emphasis actually of this chapter is how beautiful God's people are going to be. You ever looked at a marriage couple and thought, wow, it's a little bit of a mismatch there. 
I know you've probably thought that about me. But you know, Barb has a good personality. <laughs> you sometimes you just go, wow. I mean, that's a really beautiful wife. And you know, and you just go, how does this happen, right? We're superficial like that, some of us. And it's a complete mismatch in terms of just perception. And actually, you could take any two human beings in the world and create what is allegedly the greatest mismatch, and it will not come close, will not come close to Christ uniting himself to you and I through faith, where he takes the prostitute, where he takes the unclean, where he takes the foul, where he takes the nobodies of this world and says, they will be mine. And doesn't stop there, but does everything in his unlimited, infinite power through all of the suffering of the cross to make us beautiful. And not only does he make us beautiful, he makes us beautiful in such a way that we actually are no longer going to be a mismatch in a certain manner of speaking because our glory is actually his glory. Our beauty is his beauty and it will be in a type of language that we cannot even adequately use on earth. And that is why you have to be likened to precious stones. That is why you have to be likened in such a way that even the precious stone language doesn't make sense to us. But then not only does God have a concern to beautify you and protect you and provide for you, He has a concern to excite you about heaven. I got a, an award, not personal, but it was a team award yesterday that I never wanted to win. It was at the Provincials for girls high school soccer. Uh, Coach Katie, and it's been a great experience. And I have a really good team, but seven of my best players or so couldn't come because their club arranged a game during provincials, and it just was a disaster. Um, at least I thought it would be. So we went from being one of the favorites to not. And the awards happened yesterday, and as they bring out the awards, they give an MVP and they say what place you come in. But when they came to our school, all of a sudden, they had an extra plaque there. And you know what the extra plaque was? It was the Fair Play Award. Now, you only win the Fair Play Award if you don't win. You don't give the winners also the Fair Play Award. Never happens. So I won the award I never wanted to win. The Fair Play Award. Now, this is going to look good on my resume, to be honest. I needed that one. And the Fair Play Award, our girls, in fact, against one of the schools, one of the schools actually hurled obscenities at them, said, oh, can you pray for us? Are we allowed to swear against you? Called them all sorts of names that I couldn't even mention from the pulpit. It was awful. But we actually should have won the Fair Play Award. And the reason is, I actually completely changed my attitude towards the tournament before it started, knowing what I had at my disposal. And I knew we couldn't win. So I thought, let's enjoy ourselves. The pressure's off. So I'd talk to the referees before the game, get to know them, and one of the referees just said, oh, great, a coach wants to talk to me. So he's telling me, he's like, yeah, I love coming to referee here. You know, I get out away from the wife for the day. 
Like, okay, that's why I'm coaching as well. <laughs> and you start to talk to people and you encourage the organizers and say you're doing a really good job and the referee makes a bad call and you don't freak out because it doesn't matter and you, you actually enjoy yourself and you smile and you have fun. And I thought about how we live our lives is so much of how we live our lives requires an absolute attitude change towards this world in which we live because we do believe we're going to be in glory one day. We do believe it's all going to work out. We do believe that everything that we need and want and desire is actually going to be provided for us, which means the stress has been removed. The pressure is off that you can smile in this world. You can enjoy things Because your attitude has completely shifted from making everything about this world, leaving your mark on this world, succeeding according to world standards, buying all of the things the world pretends to offer. You don't need to do that anymore because you know where you're going. You know who you're going to be with and you know you're going to have everything that you can possibly desire and so you can relax. And that's what it means to believe that you are going to be with God's people in the presence of the Lamb forever, it means everything about how you approach this world changes. Everything. So that nobody here can ever be so heavenly-minded as to be of no earthly good, when in fact the opposite is the case. Because the pressure is off. And you can smile, and you can sing, and you can worship Because you're going to be doing a lot of smiling and a lot of singing and a lot of eating and a lot of drinking and a lot of fellowship and all of those things with God's people forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the promise of glory, which is a promise that